Welcome, I'm Fran Whitlock, and you're listening to Community, the Ecovillage podcast. Communalism squared almost every circle. Loneliness, or housing poverty, or ecology, or a desire to go back to the land, to be more charitable, to be living alongside the dispossessed and the vulnerable. On today's show, as guest producer and interviewer, we're welcoming Evan Welkin, who's been a long-time collaborator with Gen Europe, the Italian Ecovillage Network, a lot of associated networks and projects, and he's also the co-founder of Borgo Vasino, a folk school and community project in Italy. With Evan, we spoke to Tobias Jones, who's a British author, journalist, teacher, and community builder. He's written two books about community, Utopian Dreams, in which he documents his journey through community projects around Europe, and A Place of Refuge, which talks about the frankly astonishing project that is Windsor Hill Wood, where he and his partner raised their family while taking in anyone who came to their door, those struggling with addiction, mental health issues, homelessness, or just needing a place to rest for a while. Both books are fascinating accounts of all the good, bad, and ugly sides of living in community. And we wanted to know more about his experiences and what community means to him now. To get started, we wanted to talk about your first book, uh, Utopian Dreams, where basically you and your wife, Francesca, went and visited a number of different communities in Italy and the UK. Please do just talk to us a little bit about your process for exploring and curiosity in community life, in particular, how community might in some way inspire idealism. Yeah, it was a long time ago. We were living in Bristol at the time, and I remember, you know, almost every other person we met, and we were hanging out with, you know, the kind of people who were interested in exploring community for one reason or another, almost everyone had this this longing to live with other people, or if not live with other people, to share more. And when we spoke about it as a subject, it became clear to lots of us that communalism squared almost every circle. Loneliness or housing poverty or ecology or a desire to go back to the land, to be more charitable, not meaning charitable in terms of putting a check in the post, but actually living alongside the dispossessed and the vulnerable. Communalism seemed to answer so many questions, but, you know, sitting around a pub table in Bristol and I wanted to sort of see what it was like at the coalface and as you say I, you know communalism sets a lot of alarm bells ringing for a lot of understandable reasons and it gets a bad press but at the same time I think the other end of the extreme gets off very lightly so if you think back to 2000 and whenever it was four or five globalization was really going super speed a lot of people were suddenly living by themselves globally. For the first time, more people were living in cities than in the countryside. There was this sort of desire to do something together. So anyway, we set off and went to live in a few what would be called intentional communities. But the actual journey itself, the physical journey, I think, looking back, was quite superficial. You know, if I were running a community now and someone came and stayed with us for even three or four weeks, I think you've just begun to scratch the surface. So I wouldn't want to say it's a superficial book. I think it sort of opened a few mental doors. Yeah. And I think there's something when you're talking about sort of the process and opening the mental doors, quite often working with the eco-villages, you come across people who say, I want to live in community. Can you help me find a community? I want to be a new member of this community. 
And it seems like the process that you describe of actually opening those mental doors, discovering and learning so much during your years exploring communities, that was a really important part of the process to the creation of your own sort of communal situation. It's not something that you can snap your fingers and say, I'm going to be a communitarian now. No, no. Although, you see, even having done that exploration, we then had probably a year or two of monthly meetings with people who were keen to set something up with us. And, you know, maybe it was as much as 20 people, families, children, individuals, whoever. But it became clear to us that they couldn't commit to actually do the full communal experience because they had whatever, they had kids in school. I don't know whether we created a community or not, because in the end, it was our family home. So it's an odd model. We had a very clear purpose. We wanted to set up a woodland community that was a refuge for people in crisis. And yet we were the sole owners of this property. So you can imagine the budget was pretty small and it worked and it did become a communal space for about 10 or 12 people. We're a family of five plus, you know, say half a dozen guests. But I think because it was sort of a therapeutic community or a stroke rehab, we were benevolent dictators. So we were also very, 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 very egalitarian. But it could go from very horizontal to very vertical quite quickly. And so you can imagine all the concrete examples of that. I'd be the person cleaning the loos as much as the next person. But if they were using or boozing or being violent, I would have to become a headmaster and, and ask them to leave or give them a warning at least. So the situation was very clear. People knew they were coming to family home. They knew who our consiglieri were, our you know trustees, if you were even though we weren't a charity because we couldn't be a charity because of a conflict of interest. So that was the model. And it was just fascinating. It was every day presented a different problem. At the end of every day, we thought, right now, we know what we're doing. And, and the next day, something would happen. So this now gets sort of into the second book on the topic, which was a Place of Refuge, about your experience creating the Windsor Hill Woods. And also living in community myself, it's a rare experience to have the time also with children to actually reflect and put so much thought into digesting that experience. Can you say anything more about how you carved out time? Or I know you even referenced within the book that you would get up really early to write, but how is it possible to kind of keep that mental window open to both participate in and also then reflect on what you were doing on a daily basis? The writing of it was was interesting because as a professional writer, my income was supporting the whole project. So that means a lot of things. One, it means that no one in the community complains if I disappear for two hours to write a piece for The Guardian, to write a proposal for the BBC, something else. So I was allowed that space. It was also my sort of therapy. It was a bit similar to, you know, going to supervision. You know, we got counselling as the couple for sort of a lot of the grief that we were taking on. So it was a cathartic process. It was also me trying to process what on earth we were doing and why we were doing it. And one's motives for doing something which, in inverted commas, might appear noble and altruistic. I was always conscious of things I'd seen in lots of other communities. Am I on an ego trip? Have I got a Messiah complex? Am I on a power trip? I say I because, you know, it's harder to see than other family members can maybe see these things more clearly than you can see yourself. But I was constantly trying to understand 
why we were doing it and whether it was working and still constantly reading as many books and watching the documentaries and visiting other communities. So once a month, we would have a a road trip as a group, because as you know, you can become very inward looking as a a group of people. And I always wanted to be outward looking. So every every month we would down tools and we'd go off to visiting some, some small projects, but they were all inspiring. So we were always sort of seeing what else was out there. So that that process of constantly turning the kaleidoscope and not necessarily changing the vision, but just seeing what we could do better was, was constant. And the writing, I suppose, helped me go through that process. I mean, that's just who I am anyway, because if I'm ever at a crossroads, first thing I'll do is pick up a pen. So One of the things that you write about quite a lot when you found this time to carve out and reflect on your experiences, in both books you reflect quite a lot on freedom and choice and how in our society freedom is the ultimate goal and the fear that quite a lot of people have, people perhaps who even like the idea of community or communal living, is that, oh, it will take my freedom away from me. I will have to give up my freedom. And you make some quite interesting reflections on that and what it means to be free and maybe what it means to be free in a community. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's such a difficult concept. I mean, on a superficial level, I think it's true that if you are going to share your roof and your table with lots of other people that's not a nuclear family, you're just going to have to check in certain liberties. You can't do it without taking on board more commitments and losing some of your your freedom, whether that's the washing up rotor or that the, the, the pig feeding rotor or the inability to leave one weekend because you're on duty or whatever it is. I think it's true, but that's a sort of a superficial side of it. I think the deeper you go into it, the more you realise that other people are giving you, if it works, far more freedom than you've cashed in. So you can cash in your freedom to go away for the weekend and your freedom to put your feet up and watch crappy TV because you've got to go out in the rain and clean out the chicken coop. But actually, other people are doing those things for you as well. So that beautiful give and take, if you can create that space where it happens and not in a not in a bean counting way that says, well, I did 20 minutes for you there, so you've got to do 20 minutes for me. If it becomes done willingly, and with goodwill and forgiveness. And then that sort of worrying equation that you've got to cash in your freedom is is no longer a problem. It all depends if the community is working. If people are not getting back what they're putting in, and that's when places can become difficult. I remember particularly that line that I think I quoted in it, which is only good men and women can truly love freedom because the rest don't love freedom. They they love license. So it's being licentious, I suppose. And the other one is the famous line that, that the truth can set you free and that actually freedom as an end in itself isn't won't lead us anywhere. But yeah, we could talk for hours about this, couldn't we? But I think that's what's really interesting here is that you're clearly somebody that's reflecting critically on your experience as you're living it, which I think there are valid criticisms of community movements. That's not always something we comfortably do, either in, you know, mainstream life, or especially as we strike out to do something idealistic and really ambitious. And I'm particularly curious, um, as you described, you know, these forays into the the wider world um, that you would take as a part of community life at um, at Windsor Hill. Like, 
Um, would you say that now that you're no longer living there, um, is that, is that something that continues on? Is that a continued community value? Um, is that something that you felt like you learned over time or that you knew you wanted to build in from the, from the get go? Yeah, it's difficult. I suppose it's a question of boundaries and whether you're going outside the boundaries and how much the world is coming into you. So that's sort of the membrane of a community I always find very interesting and who's allowed in on what terms, who's allowed out on what terms. And the more open it is, I think, the better it functions. But that depends on the topography of the place. So we really had to battle to keep the drawbridge down, partly because, you know, you're living with half a dozen vulnerable people who are perhaps for the first time in years or decades feeling safe and loved and protected and contented. If they know the door is always open, they can get fall off the wagon, I'm afraid. They can get into emotional or uh, relationship confusions and head-messing situations. So it's, it's dangerous always having the drawbridge down. But I think if you are set up as an open-door community, that gives it a different vibe to one that is, you know, we all live here and we have residency rights and you're allowed to visit, but you're not part of it. So it's, it's a sort of going out as much as possible and then always having an open door. Our problem was we were in a really small four-bedroom house and as soon as a guest arrived, they parked their car outside our living room. So that adds its difficulties, you know, the shape of the space. And that's when anything prescriptive that is written about sharing lives with other people becomes nebulous because... All those things that when you're visualising and discerning what it is you want to do, they can all get knocked sideways by the actual place you end up in. It sounds like that, even if you weren't going in, some folks choose to form a community with a really clear ideal in mind of what the world needs and want to build it in this set specific place. You spoke and wrote about all throughout the experience of this sense that like there's addiction in so many aspects of our lives in community or not. And so that's what you were trying out and helping folks move through in the space of transition and refuge um, as a part of this container that you were making. Mm -hmm. I'm curious now because you're now living back in Italy, having made the transition from that intense experience for many years to then passing the baton onto another family. I'm curious if you want to say anything more about that process of transition, but also, do you miss it? Do you feel really comfortable with having made that choice? Say anything more also about where things are now with that community having left it on. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting we're talking today on the 7th of December. So it's our wedding anniversary, and it's also the day my mother died. Very clear, she had a brain tumor. My father, like I say, is a medic, said she won't be here by Christmas. So our bunch of advisors said, look, you just need to, you know, in a couple of months, close down and be with your folks. So we did that, gave all our guests ample warning. And you're suddenly mourning not only the imminent death of your mother, but the closure of your community. And then the day after we made that decision, a trustees meeting with our consigliere, 20 grand dropped in our bank account, anonymous donation. And so you kind of think, what is going on here? And that for me was a, there's a seed there that when you're ready to plant it again, and I wrote to the guy because although it was anonymous, you know, you can track him. He, he 
didn't really want to be involved. It's very sort of short sentence or two. I, I said to him, look, really sorry, this has happened. We're pausing the community. Don't know if it'll ever reopen. And he just wrote back and said, you'll know what to do with the money. It's yours. That was a sign of trust in us. But it also meant that we could envisage doing a little fundraising to give to the, the charity to attract a new family and say, look, we've created this. You've got a buoyant bank account. Have it. And our advisor said, look, it's so unlikely you're going to find anyone bonkers enough to do this. And we had a few applicants, not I think five or six. And there was one couple, it was just so right for them. She had worked in a charity with vulnerable children. He'd worked as a, a parole officer with ex-offenders and they knew what they were doing. And in some ways were you know, more experienced than us. We decided to to reopen, to overlap with this family. So you can imagine it was already quite crowded as a house to have two families, plus new guests coming in, plus you're trying to organise an international move. Anyway, so the long story is Winds Hill Wood is still running, which is very, very uplifting for us on all sorts of levels. We wanted it to keep going and we're very lucky that it did keep going. And so we're now in this position where they've been there for three years. So we now got to pay back a lot of mates who lent us that money when we moved to, to Italy. But then we want to do something similar in, in Parma. And, and we want to do something similar, but very different. And we're just beginning to think about how it would be done. Obviously, you're talking about a place in Italy that, you know, many people might feel drawn to. Think, oh, I wish I could do that for whatever reason. They can't. And I'm just thinking about COVID and how it's changed people's landscapes and conceptions of community. And at the end of Utopian Dreams, you go home, you've had all these experiences. And what you do, you draw a circle on the map around your home area and you say, this is my community now. What can I find in this circle? And in a sense, that's basically what people have had to do now. Their space has been reduced. Their community is now who they can see, perhaps within walking distance or outside. So maybe just very briefly, you could talk a little bit about exploring community by proximity, close to home. It's, it's really interesting because that's one of the contradictions of the way we've done it, is that I feel, I remember writing that and I remember believing it. And then five years later, we'd moved away and set up our own community. So, you know, we did draw that circumference and then we moved on. And so I don't want to sort of sound hypocritical and, and make out that that's all we ever did. But I think what we saw was that the projects within that mile radius were extraordinary. I mean, it was, you know, crowded inner city Bristol, but there was an intentional community at the end of our cul-de-sac. There were lots of people had these gardens with one apple tree in them. And this dude said... I'm going to ring their doorbell, ask if I can take away their apples and turn it into cider. Would they be happy with that? Of course, everyone would go, yeah, of course you can, mate. And it became a great project. And there were so many like that. And I read a really interesting piece a few years ago about a guy who just, I think it was in LA, who just started offering to walk alongside people who were lonely and they called him. I can't remember the details, but it stuck in my head as an example of just walking with people, people trying to learn French, being connected to lonely French pensioners who could obviously offer their time teaching French to 10-year-old kids in Santa Monica or wherever they were. So that sort of simple stuff. You know, that's like the apprenticeship for the, for the big game. And people who can't do that, you know, they, they, won't, they won't get the, 
get the harder, deeper end they can. Well, and that is really an excellent thread that I see throughout all of this of your emphasis on practical, like, let's just do this. And we really appreciate your time and thoughts shared with us today. Thank you. Thanks Not so much for joining us. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. You can find more episodes at geneurope.org slash community podcast and sign up to our newsletter if you want to learn more about how you can get involved with eco-villages. If you're interested in reading Utopian Dreams or A Place of Refuge, which I highly recommend, we'll share links on the show notes for today's episodes. You can also check out Evan's project, Borgobasino, at borgobasino.org. It's beautiful. Thanks for listening. And as always, let us know what you think and send us an email with what you'd like to hear from us to fran at geneurope.org. See you next time.